Well, a new survey, it was done by Research Co., finds that a good number of British Columbians would like to see restaurant menus provide nutritional information and calorie counts. This was an online survey, and it found that four in five British Columbians say they would like to have a regulation similar to one that's currently in place in Ontario, where it is mandatory to display calories on any menu that lists or depicts standard food items offered for sale by a regulation regulated food service premises. So put the calories on the menu. It changes a little bit depending on the age of the respondent, but to even across, right across the board, the lowest was for people above or over the age of 55, and that came in at 79% saying yes, they would like to see that information on the menu. So let's bring in Ian Tostenson, the president of the BC Food and Restaurant Association. Ian, great to have you back on the show. Thanks, Jill. How are you doing? Excellent. What do you think about this, that people want to see that information on the menus? Well, I guess the way to look at this, Ontario is doing this, and and they have to have this in place by January. And so, first of all, to the eyes of a restaurant, this is a very difficult thing to pull off, depending now. In Ontario, it's all-inclusive. It includes the ice cube and, and the drink and the alcoholic drink. And so... All those things have to be measured in terms of calorie content. So you can just imagine. And then this one Subway chap said, you know, we just don't make one standard uh, sandwich. You know, we, we can add this and take that away. So how do you deal with, with calories in a customized meal? So those, those are sort of some of the things that are really challenging in Ontario. They, they do it, Jill, not in all restaurants, but in restaurants that are, um, that are chain restaurants, fast food restaurants, and also chain uh, restaurants over 20 Units. So if you have over 20 restaurants, you, you, you're compelled to do this. So I, now the other side of it, I think it's a good idea. I mean, I, you know, I look, when I see menus that have calories on it, it makes me think twice. And I think that, um, you know, you go, sometimes you're astounded. You, you had no idea what the calories were in some salad, for example. But the fact is, it's very difficult to do this from a restaurant perspective and do it consistently. Uh, because there are some, aren't there, uh, fast food restaurants even here in BC that do this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and what they do, we have a program in BC that we were we were involved in at the very beginning, and um, it's a nutritional program, and it's um, it's optional. And what you and so if you go into a restaurant that's participating and ask to see the nutritional information. You can see the nutritional uh, sort of uh, footprint of that menu item over sort of 14 criteria. What the BC government is highlighting is sodium and also calories. And that works well, but it's on a voluntary basis, and it's really costly. Like um, what we found was two things with restaurants. Number one, it's about $100 to $200 per item on the menu to have it professionally analyzed so you're accurate. And um, and this is why I think Ontario targeted the chains because uh, a lot of independent restaurants, you know, Jill's Diner, you might be just running in your mind recipes from your family or whatever. You don't necessarily have a recipe. You sort of just look, I did the best spaghetti in the world, and you do it however you want to do it day in and day out, or you buy fresh ingredients and it changes. So it's very difficult to get that, um, that profile of, of that food, you know, on a daily basis. And it does seem like something that would be a lot easier for a chain restaurant where everything is uniform and everything is the same. Because you're right, even in a smaller restaurant, there might be a special one night that's completely different and has an ingredient that's not used uh, the rest of the week. 
Well, that's right. And, they ex- and a lot of what happens here is that they exempt uh, those specials and, uh, and they exempt um, a menu or uh, say a menu, that's a special menu sign for a month or two. And uh, so that sort of gives the restaurant some flexibility. But, you know, I guess, you know, when I look at this other side, nutrition is such an important part. About 30 percent of meals that Canadians eat are outside of the uh, outside of the home. And so, you know, I think it's it's important to have information. Yet, you know, come on, if, you, if you're going to go to a place and have hamburgers and, you know, uh, milkshakes and, and burgers and fries and stuff, do you, is on the calorie count, is it really going to change much? I mean, you're out there for probably just to fulfill an enjoyment. And a lot of people, we found with uh, the program in BC, a lot of people didn't really want to deal with it. I mean, as much as they say they want to eat healthy and be conscious of sodium and uh, cal- uh, calories, uh, they kind of want to indulge a bit too. It's kind of their, their time to get away and enjoy themselves and not be bombarded with, excuse me, but that glass of wine has 150 calories in it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and yeah. you're right too. I mean, anybody, if you're going to a restaurant, if you're having the double bacon cheeseburger with fries, you you know that's a splurge, or at least that should be a splurge. That is a high calorie, high fat meal. And do you really need the the restaurant to to spell that out for you? Well, that's right. And we've been a real advocate of working with government. Um, it was really funny in BC because. You know, they said restaurants. This all started because they were going to make it mandatory in BC at one point, and then we said let's make it voluntary. Um, but they have a hard time even implementing this kind of program, even in their own institutions. Um, you know, with hospitals and and uh, care facilities. Um, Lana Popham, the Minister of Agriculture, is doing a good job now about bringing in more local food and more nutrition, and that's important in, in, the, in that sort of context. But no, you're right. I mean, you know, where is the education that starts at school? And when I talk to, you know, people that have kids at school still, um, they're not getting this kind of information at the very basic level. So you and I should be able to figure out with a little bit of education and how we grew up and what, you know, what's got more calories and more perhaps sodium than other things on a menu when we go out, but they don't really deal with that much in, in, the, in the school system, which is unfortunate. Well, and sodium is one of those things, too, that, that I think can be kind of hidden and secret. And even when you think you might know that something, you, you might not know just how high something uh, can be in sodium. Do you think it's also in that maybe, I mean, is there a way to take it out of the, the restaurants? To, so the onus isn't necessarily on a restaurant to provide all of, uh, to do all of the independent testing and, and analysis to put it on the menu. I mean, everybody it seems has a smartphone now there are numerous apps out there that people can put food into and the app will tell them basically what that food item contains is it something that we should be looking at technology perhaps instead or at least as a supplement there is uh there's a startup company in vancouver that's doing just that you can go in and and almost make um you know putting your ingredients as you see them on the menu and figure out if it's in for some people i and, and and I respect this. You know, this is really an important issue. You've got allergies. Um, if you've got a health condition, these sort of things, if you don't know the information, can get in your way of enjoying themselves. So you're right. There is a company in Vancouver that's just in the, in the development that you can sort of go, that's a great restaurant. You don't tell me this, but if I take you know, the steak and the potato and the carrots and the gravy, it'll give you an approximation on, uh, on a, a, a print of the overall health score. Uh, and nutritional aspects of that food, which I think is a great idea. So at least, as you say, there's that option if you want to indulge in it. Because there is that idea too, and I think anybody can say, fine, if you're going to put gravy all over what's on your plate, that's not a healthy choice, no matter what. 
But you might think that soup is a healthy choice, but then not realize that the soup you've chosen is really actually quite high in fat or really high in sodium, or there, there's those hidden things that, you, that you're just not aware of. Well, yeah, I mean, you could say, you know, I'm going to have a little, you know, bowl of soup in a sandwich. It sounds pretty sort of innocuous for lunch. And that soup could maybe have 1,800 to 2,000 milligrams of sodium, which is almost your entire amount for the, you know, the whole day. And, uh, and the celery, you know, and the sandwich, you know, between the bread, the mayonnaise, and, and whatever else could be, you know, um, really high in calories. You know, it could be 1,200 to 1,300 calories just for lunch alone. So it's surprising how much we know and how much we don't know when it comes to nutrition. And I think you're right. It's, it's um, you know, there is the, – the information is out there. The technology probably needs to, to, to become uh, better to make it more accessible for those that really care. I mean, if – you're eating and you realize your waistline is kind of going in the wrong direction. It's probably the indication that you got to sort of figure things out a bit differently, right? <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a clue for sure. Um, yeah. is, it, is it something that we should leave then voluntary up to the restaurants? And I mean, this is a poll that says, yeah, people like having that information. And I would think if restaurants take that move and provide it and it boosts the number of customers they get, then, then go for it. Yeah. I think if you see, you know, in British Columbia, McDonald's doing an outstanding job with this, for example. Um, it's on their menu board. Same with A&W. So the information is out there. So what I would tell everybody right now is before we say let's do this on a mandatory basis, is I check the websites uh, of the companies. You go to White Spot, you can find all, you know, the same thing with Earl's and, and Joey's. All the nutritional information is on the website. So you can just search it out a bit more. You're not necessarily going to have it convenient at the table when people argue, well, what about people who don't have, uh, you know, a phone? Well, I don't know anybody who doesn't have a phone these days, so I just not play on the fringes here. But generally, this information is available. And quite honestly, uh, if, you, if it's a concern, a restaurant that doesn't appear to have it, it's your favorite independent restaurant, just ask the owner and ask the chef. And you'd be surprised at um, how engaging they, they will be to tell you what they did, and they'll be straight up with it. So I don't think we should do it. I think mandatory things gets into all sorts of problems, I think. We've always been an industry that does things better when we're asked, you know, to deal with the challenge and we were much more innovative than being sort of government imposed. All right. Uh, sounds good. Uh, we're almost out of time. I'm loathe to, to let you go without asking ride sharing. Anything new on that front? Well, there's legislation uh, and there's going into a committee and this committee is now supposed to, to sort it all out. But we had a win. We actually had the city of Vancouver with the new mayor and council have uh, unanimously agreed on a motion that uh, Councillor D. Genova put through to have the mayor write a letter to uh, the province saying, let's get on with this. Let's get on to it. And that, that's major because, this, as you may recall, the city of Vancouver was um, uh, really against uh, ride-sharing. So uh, they, they accepted our presentation. Um, you know, from a, a, It was really interesting information. We had some people that talked about the, the woman that runs BC Epileptic Society talked about how liberating it is for 50,000 people in BC that can't uh, can't drive and they need to get medicine and all those different things. So the city of Vancouver said, yeah, we get it. So is this going to help it out? I think it might help a little bit. we got to keep the pressure on. I mean, David Eby said that it's coming. So I think your listeners should go to uh, ridesharingnow.com and keep sending letters to government and keep pushing them. And one day, maybe Jill will celebrate this that we actually got it. <laughs> one day, we uh, we yeah. hope. All right, uh, Ian, I'll let you go. Thank you again so much. Have a great day, Jill. Thanks.
Well, if you are a renter in Vancouver, you were likely paying attention to a discussion that took place at Vancouver City Hall with the new mayor and council. And they're taking another look at a plan that would have a policy in, or intended to protect renters. The decision was to further study the idea. It was put forward by Jean Swanson, who is a new councillor. She's also a longtime uh, anti-poverty activist, a longtime housing activist uh, who put forward, who proposed these new rules, which again are intended to protect renters in the city. They've been sent uh, for further study. Uh, There are some concerns about the policy and somebody else who has concerns about this idea as well is uh, David Hutniak, who is the CEO of Landlord BC. And he joins me on the line. David, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. What are your concerns about this? Because on the surface, it looks like a policy that would be put in place to protect renters. But what are the concerns that you have uh, with what Vancouver City Hall is looking at? Well, I mean, the, the ultimate irony here, uh, Jill, is that, in fact, uh, the majority of the motion put forward will actually uh, do just the exact opposite and, in fact, harm renters. And uh, while that might seem counterintuitive to some, uh, the fact of the matter is that what uh, the, this motion proposes, uh, setting aside the fact that uh, a lot of what is being suggested here is outside the city's uh, jurisdiction, but what the motion proposes basically is going to mean that uh, owners of rental property are just not going to have the the uh, financial wherewithal, frankly, or the or the economic uh, uh, encouragement to continue to invest in their existing rental buildings. And so the older stock, uh, which we all know there's a lot of, is going to unfortunately, uh, you know, be subject to bare maintenance, which doesn't help anyone. And uh, perhaps even more critically, uh, especially with the notion of the, uh, vacancy control, which is tying rent control to the unit, uh, this is going to have a huge negative impact on new purpose-built rental. Uh, frankly, you know, the pension funds are simply not going to invest in our, our market here to to build this uh, housing typology. And, uh, you know, I think it's important to understand here, this is not just market rental housing providers that would be negatively impacted here. It's also the nonprofits. They have big concerns. But at the end of the day, it is really renters that are going to suffer. You know, perhaps those today who are sitting, uh, you know, in a a unit that they've been in a number of years uh, with, uh, you know, very low rent, I suppose they may be able to take some solace from this these proposed changes, but all new renters, the uh, thousands of people moving into our our, our community here, and, uh, and you know, because this is going to have impacts uh, on a pretty broad basis, uh, you know, where are those people going to live? And so this 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 really needs to be looked at uh, more seriously. And, and really, you know, we uh, the mayor actually is uh, he proposed an amendment that uh, really resulted in this being pushed to staff to study more in depthly. And I think he and, and, and the, those councillors who voted for this uh, this amended uh, motion really deserve a lot of credit for uh, understanding that, you know, we need to hit pause here. We need to understand the full uh, economic impacts and make sure that, uh, you know, there's no unintended consequences. Like the stakes are really high here if the wrong decisions are made. 
Uh, talk a bit. So you mentioned one of the, the more contentious issues here is linking the rent increase to the unit rather than the tenant, because I think that's one of the concerns is if somebody leaves a, a place that they've been in for several years and it's the, the rent has been going up in smaller amounts, somebody leaves that unit, it's then rented out to somebody, the landlord jacks up the rent and it suddenly becomes, I suppose, into a different category where it's not affordable for, for that particular group anymore. Well, I mean, the the, the adjustment rent to something opposing uh, or, or approaching, pardon me, market is done uh, on the basis of, of continued investment in that unit as well. I mean, you know, on a go forward uh, basis here with uh, the current allowable maximum at CPI only, what that is doing for their typical landlord is, you know, covering the. the and barely covering, frankly, the bare ongoing costs, uh, sort of the necessary cash flow to uh, to do the you know the required maintenance and keep the lights on and and the, and the heat on, et cetera, et cetera. This is very low margin business. It's really a turnover that we have the opportunity to make the more significant investments uh, in the in the in the broader building and the individual units. And so that's why, uh, you know, being able to uh, have uh, rents uh, on turnover, uh, you know, approach uh, market is is critical because that is when we basically catch up for the, uh, you know, the deficient cash flow on a year-over-year basis because of uh, the allowable maximum that we can increase rents on an annual basis. And what about concerns about, and you've touched on this, uh, the fact that a lot of the rental housing stock in Metro Vancouver is quite old. Uh, do you think this will lead to then these units that might have been updated or or landlords would have had some incentive to make them safer to, to do work on them now won't? Well, that that's the real risk here. And absolutely, that's, uh, you know, this is not hyperbola. Uh, where you know when you have no economic case, you don't have the money to basically continue to make that investment. You're not going to make that investment. I mean, it just this is just common sense, and and so obviously we're very concerned about what's going to happen to the existing stock. But like I said, the the probably the bigger issue here is that uh, you know pension funds and lenders are not going to invest in helping us build more new purpose-built rental. And we have, um, you know, the, ultimately our rental crisis here is driven by the absence of supply. This is a 40-year problem. Uh, unfortunately, we aren't going to solve it overnight. But the reality is if we continue to have regressive uh, and harmful regulation, it's just going to, you know, exacerbate the situation. And uh, so... You know, we're starting to see, or we were starting to see some good traction on new purpose-built rental, uh, and it would be, you know, just uh, really harmful for that to, to halt, and, and that risk exists if we don't uh, really, you know, take a thoughtful and, I think, a holistic approach here, which is not just, uh, you know, building more rental, but, you know, we obviously need to look at... Uh, you know, the renter, renter universe, obviously, uh, you know, seniors and there are some populations who are challenged uh, from an income perspective. But there are solutions that are used around the world where there's, you know, rent subsidies through portable housing benefits. Uh, you know, there's there's transitionary programs, etc. Uh, so these have to be looked at. and we, we can't just keep 
uh, you know, having government uh, say, well, landlords, you're making too much money. We're just going to make it more difficult for you to, to, to provide the housing you do. I mean, that's, that's just really, really short-sighted. And frankly, it's not true. Well, and, and I guess the irony, and you, you touched on this off the top too, is that the very rules that are being talked about and looked at to try and protect renters could lead to having far less rental stock available. Absolutely. I mean, this, this is not rocket science. Well, I mean, you know, housing and, and, and the, you know, the issues around housing are, are complex. There's a lot of moving parts, interest rates, you know, lenders, uh, cost of land, cost of construction, all these things. But by and large, this is not rocket science. The reality is that if you make it more difficult or impossible for rental housing providers to, uh, you know, have the financial wherewithal to invest in their properties to build new, then they're not going to do either. And we already have this crisis because we have a shortage of supply. I mean, the last thing we need is to further suppress supply. Uh, It just makes no sense. And so, like I said, again, I think, you know, the motion put forward uh, was not well considered. We're really pleased. And I know a lot of other stakeholders are very pleased that the, the mayor in particular and, and those councillors who support his, his amendment, you know, basically are, are going to encourage sort of a pause here. Let's take a deeper look at this. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be intimately involved with that. Other stakeholders will be, but, but there's a huge unintended, unintended consequences here. And, uh, you know, we're hopeful that we're going to get the right results. And, and really, this could be a conduit, frankly, for, uh, you know, some good information getting to council that make intelligent decisions and really will collectively find some solutions here that uh, will uh, benefit renters and, uh, you know, really ensure we have an environment conducive to building uh, the ton of more rental that we need. All right. We'll leave it there. David, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Well, this past week, at least 18 people in B.C. were hospitalized after being exposed to carbon monoxide. In Vancouver, 13 people in an office along uh, West 5th Avenue were sent to hospital. And just one day later, a family of five from Barrier was airlifted to Vancouver after being poisoned with carbon monoxide in their home. So this has many people asking, why do we not have detectors in every home in the province? So let's talk, talk to uh, Len Garris, who is the Surrey Fire Chief and who is on the line with us right now. Uh, Chief Garris, thank you so much for being with us. Good morning, Joe. How are you? I am very well. How about yourself? Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, whenever we see these stories, I think it's much like when we see stories about fire and we're reminded to check the batteries in our fire detectors. What would you like to see as far as carbon monoxide detectors uh, in homes? Well, Jill, um, like we've been, uh, the Fire Chiefs Association of British Columbia have been advocating for um, CO detection in all homes retrospectively uh, for a number of years now. Um, the National Building Code requires them in an all-new construction, but not in existing buildings. Uh, we have that legislation, uh, which basically focuses on smoke detectors, as you pointed out. And, and we've had amazing results in terms of uh, declining death rates in the province. And, you know, it, it's a very simple process if we can just uh, get some legislation in place that will allow us to... Uh, 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 encourage, if you will, um, CO detection and existing buildings. And uh, I, I think we could see a big change on that. I think it's important to note that we see about 300 fatalities in Canada per year. 
and about 200 hospitalizations. And uh, this is an opportunity with a combined smoke alarm CO detector to turn that around. And how does it happen? What is it in the homes that leads to um, carbon monoxide poisoning? Well, anything anything that uh, produces an exhaust, like a hot water tank or a furnace, uh, a gas burning stove, any of those types of products can uh, produce CO. Uh, this type of year, this time of year, we can see situations where we get uh, inversions uh, in the atmosphere, and sometimes the uh, those devices that I just mentioned uh, don't vent well, and uh, we can see splashes of CO into the house, and that can accumulate over time, and uh, it can cause it can cause what we've been seeing. And are we talking, because I think we tend to look at, at freestanding homes, although the one case in Vancouver was an office as well. Are we talking about all homes, be it single family, townhomes, apartments and condos? Yeah, absolutely. Any, any place that has an open flame that uses uh, for heat or hot water, those types of things uh, can be at risk uh, or greater risk of uh, CO poisoning. Uh, you know, uh, homes that have uh, attached garages to them where the, the seals between the uh, uh, between the garage and the uh, regular home, may, maybe not as uh, secure as it should be, and uh, can find CO leaking into the house as well. And how many do you have to have? If you Obviously, it would depend on the square footage, but do you need one in every room, or do you need them strategically placed in your home? I would say strategically on every floor is what we're advocating for uh, at this point in time. I know the building code actually requires a bit more aggressive uh, coverage, but in terms of retrospective, I think if you have it, um, have them in, in every floor that would suffice. And, and I was reading on this as well, and, and a lot of people have been joining these conversations talking about the importance of having these if they've had experiences where they've gone off and they've realized that there was a CO in their house. Uh, there seems to be a sense, though, if your building or your home is older and drafty, that it's not as important. Is that a bit of a false sense, though? Well, I wouldn't be relying on uh, fresh air leakage into a house to protect you. I'd make sure that you had a CO and a smoke alarm, uh, uh, which is tested uh, and active in your home uh, as, as an insurance for this. It's, it's a cheap piece of insurance, maybe $30 will purchase you a CO detector for your home. And is it like a fire a smoke detector in that you you, you test test the batteries twice a year or you just make sure it's in in good working order? Well, certainly um, the new technology is um, it's it's actually advanced quite a bit. It, it actually prohibits us from uh, disabling the uh, device. They're ten year guaranteed uh, devices now. They uh, they should be they should be tested uh, monthly or at least twice a year. Um, if, if you can remember to do that. These devices, it's impossible to take the battery out on the new technology, and the battery and the device will tell you when it's reached its end of life. Um, so, and, and that's what our, our most problems uh, we find with smoke alarms now is, is that people are not testing them. They st- simply just stop working, and uh, people don't realize it. So certainly testing what you have in your home, but the new technology will, will, will basically take care of you for the next 10 years. And I think the city of Vancouver so made these detectors mandatory last year. And, uh, and then it seems to be a bit piecemeal when you go throughout the rest of the province. So would you like to see if we just had one, one law, one rule that, that, that was in place for the entire province? 
Well, Vancouver Vancouver's very fortunate. It has a charter, so it can create those types of laws. The rest of the municipalities in British Columbia cannot, and uh, we would be relying on the province in order to uh, make uh, CO detection mandatory in a retrospective environment. And we would we would applaud the government to do that. Our association, our colleagues in the fire services in British Columbia, are, are supporting this. It, it only makes sense. We have we've had huge with our smoke alarm campaigns and reducing deaths and injuries. Uh, all, we're asking, all we're going to be doing is, is, is combining those devices as a combination uh, smoke and CO, and uh, it, it could be a win-win. It could definitely. I must. Ima- I would imagine that, that you being a fire chief and having seen this happen so much, um, it, is it frustrating that, that people aren't more frightened by this? I mean, this is a colorless, odorless thing that could kill you. Well, yes, it's, uh, there's... It's a silent danger in your house. We're all busy, especially this time of year, and uh, that's not top of mind. Uh, as I said, the new technology we had—if we could go back ten or twenty years with the new technology—we we wouldn't be seeing the types of problems we're having today because the devices, as I said before, are alerting us to uh, when they expire, when they're not working. They alert us when they're not uh, when when there's some difficulties, and they alert us when it's time to change the device. So it. it it's going to do a lot of the work for us, but right now we're in this transition stage. A large number of uh, residential fires that occur in the province annually, smoke alarms are not working. It's almost half, and that's that's very discouraging. This is another hill to climb, but uh, I know that the industry is, is up for it, and if we can get some support from the government for uh, some legislation to make it retrospective, I think we could have a win-win here. All right. We will leave it there. Uh, Surrey Fire Chief Langaris, thank you so much for your time this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Well, if you live in Surrey, you've likely heard the news that uh, there is a lot of postponing going on, or there is at least a proposal to postpone millions of dollars in capital spending. And uh, some of the comments about that had to do with uh, ice arenas, uh, community centres, places uh, where people could go and enjoy certain uh, public spaces. And there is some concern, I think, from residents who were looking forward to the new spending, the new building in Surrey, and are now concerned what uh, the postponement might look like. Uh, But let's take a closer look at the numbers themselves. And joining me on the line is Derek Penner, who is a business reporter at the Vancouver Sun. Derek, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, Good to be here. Uh, You've written a piece uh, along with a co-worker about the debt in Surrey because the mayor of Surrey uh, is raising concerns. He has talked it or sorry, he has talked uh, a lot about the city's finances and where things stand. But the story you've written actually looks at it much differently. Maybe break down the numbers for us. Well, uh, the the municipalities are creatures of uh, the Municipal Act in British Columbia. So uh, the Municipal Act sets some parameters for how municipalities have to operate. Uh, and they report a certain amount of data to the, the ministry to show uh, how they're doing. And one of those is uh, how much money they're spending on uh, to service, service their debt on an annual basis. Uh, now, these numbers swing kind of a fair bit from year to year, but uh, they show sort of consistently uh, how much of uh, a municipality is spending in its budget on uh, on servicing debt. That's sort of long-term capital projects. Uh, they have a limit from the, the, the province of they can't spend more than 25% of their revenue uh, servicing, servicing debt. 
very similar to how uh, sort of a household might sort of uh, aim to uh, spend a certain amount of, of their, their budget on, say, their mortgage. So, so they sort of keeping an eye on things and don't overextend themselves. Uh, when you look at the numbers, Surrey's kind of uh, kind of in the top end of the, the middle of the pack. Um, they only spend uh, about 13% of their, uh, uh, or in 2017, they spent about 13% of their budget servicing their, that's 30%, 13% of, of that 25% cap. It's only about 3 or 3% of revenue uh, to service debt. So there, it appears that there's, although there might be concerns about taking on larger projects at, at this time uh, on the mayor's part, uh, they are well within the limits of not overextending themselves, it appears. So does it seem odd that uh, the mayor of Surrey, that Doug McCallum, uh, is expressing this alarm about the debt and uh, talking about postponing these uh, projects, postponing this capital spending? Uh, a little bit. Um, he did, I recall, I don't live in Surrey, so I wasn't following the campaign that closely, but he, he did uh, uh, sort of campaign on uh, an element of fiscal responsibility and not uh, raising taxes too much, um, considering uh, uh, concerns about raising taxes uh, on the part of politicians all the time. So uh, I don't... I guess he was under uh, some, I wouldn't say pressure, but he wanted to, to give at least a sign that you know he is taking that, that, that promise seriously. And I guess when you look at the numbers, too, and these numbers are included in the piece that you've written for the Vancouver Sun, when you say Doug, Surrey is kind of the upwards, but at the middle of the pack, there are some municipalities that, that have it down, really, they're very low or even at zeros. Or if you look at, say, like Delta is at a one, City of North Vancouver at a 0.6, there certainly is a wide range of, of the spending and, and the debt spending when you go from municipality to municipality. Yeah, that's true. And the, as I mentioned, the numbers can, if, if you look back at the reports, the, the numbers can swing uh, quite a bit from year to year. And there's some reasons for that, um, which I learned a bit later. Uh, if you look at uh, White Rock, for instance, um, it, it, in 2017, it appears that they used uh, almost 70% of that uh, re- revenue cap servicing debt. Uh, but it heard from the city of White Rock, and it turns out that they made a very large, uh, like seven point eight, seven point eight. They had uh, seven point eight million in debt servicing costs, but six point two million of that was a, a one-time payment on uh, a short-term loan uh, that they were eliminating, which is a good thing. Um, so they are argue that it, it shouldn't sort of really count against their their legislated debt cap, uh, and you know next year it's going to be very different because they've 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 eliminated that that debt, um, and these are typically long term projects. Um, some of the smaller municipalities won't take those on very often. Uh, they take them on carefully, and uh, as explained to me by the Ministry of Municipal Affairs, these these are often uh, projects that, that municipalities uh, plan for, for a long time. Uh, they will also build up uh, reserve funds to to pay for uh, 
project. So they'll have a down payment uh, to make on, a, say, a, a library or, uh, you know, community center. So they're, they're only borrowing a portion of, of that. And uh, at, at the end, they wind up with a facility that's going to last them, you know, twice, twice as long, or three times as long as the, you know, the debt they took on. Right. So uh, I would imagine there'll be some residents, though, that will look at this and say, well, why are you canceling or why are you proposing to postpone these projects uh, when the books don't look so bad? Well, uh, that's, and if you live in, in sort of the catchment areas of, of those centers that were going to be built in and, and now, now put off, um, you, will, you will have those questions because you, you uh, uh, were exposed expecting those they were planned uh yeah those are very good questions for for the mayor and i'm, I'm sure he, uh the mayor and council will uh, hear a lot from those people i'm, I'm sure they will uh, as well all right uh, derek we will leave it there but thank you so much uh, for going through the numbers with us today appreciate it uh, you're welcome thanks for calling that is derek penner he is a business reporter at the vancouver sun you can check out uh, that article if you especially if you are a surrey resident and you're interested more interested in this because it is directly having an impact or will have an impact on people like derek said who were anticipating this who were looking forward to these projects uh, going ahead you can check out the full article in uh, the vancouver sun uh, before we take a break for the news headlines to the bottom of the hour just wanted to play for you uh, one of the calls we got to the buzz line earlier this morning and this was following our conversation with Len Garris, who is the fire chief in Surrey, saying that there should be a mandatory rule for carbon monoxide detectors in all homes in BC. And this follows uh, some recent poisonings, 18 people uh, in two different uh, poisoning situations sent to hospital this past week. Here's what one listener had to say on the buzz line. Sounds like you've just changed the law. Making it a law is one of the other things that we just don't need. We need advertisements to say what happens here. What I would love to know is when these people are recommending this stuff, what is the penalty if you get caught and what is the cost of managing and and protecting us from ourselves? Uh, let's get ads on the newspaper. Let's put ads on the radio. Um, and then if somebody gets into a house, um, they can say, hey, this is necessary, but that's not make it another law piled upon thousands of laws already that have to be enforced by somebody. All right, just one of the calls to the buzz line. I, I tend to agree in that sense, in that we're all adults, are we not? And we know that smoke detectors should be installed and working. Carbon monoxide detectors are, in Vancouver at least, they are now regulated. They do need to be there. But we're adults. If you live in a home, you could have put these devices in yourself. And one of the shocking stats from the Surrey Fire Chief was when they go to fires, about half the fires they attend, the homes do not have working smoke detectors. And even if you make the argument you're a renter and it's the responsibility of the landlord, you can still go out and get yourself one. If your landlord doesn't provide one, yeah, you can go after your landlord and try and get that. But you know what might be a safer way of doing it? Just go get one and install it in your home. And maybe we can be responsible for our own safety. If somebody presented you with a map of BC or even lower BC and said, point to Sumas Lake on this map. Would you know where to look? You might not, but don't feel bad. If you're unaware of where Sumas Lake is or was, you are not the only one. But you can learn all about it in a new book. It is called Before We Lost the Lake.
Blake. And the writer of that book, Chad Reimer, joins me on the line now. Chad, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Tell me how you got started in researching and trying to learn more about Sumas Lake. Yeah, um, I'm from this area, from my high school in Abbotsford, and then went to school at UBC in that. And so I became aware of it. I've been aware of it for quite some time as a historian, and it's always it's always fascinated me. Um, and so, you know, I finally, after doing graduate studies in that, uh, I finally um, was able to get at a project I've been thinking about for a while. And uh, it just seemed fascinating because... Uh, people didn't know that there was a lake there, and um, they knew that it had been drained. But and then you know there has been writing in that on the draining of it, but nobody had looked at at you know the lake when it was there. You know its life, not its death, really. Hmm. So um, that's that that's what intrigued me, and um, I started you know looking into it. So where exactly was it? It was between Abbotsford and Chilliwack. I mean, if you're if you're driving on the freeway, I mean, the most dramatic thing is when you, you right at Abbotsford, um, before, you know, the Abbotsford exit, and you're going down towards Sumas, Sumas and Wacom exit. You go down this this long kind of you know ramp, um, you know, right? You come from higher elevation down, and you can look out, and it's all flat there all of a sudden. And it's it's weird because, you know, it's not a lot of places in B.C. that are that flat. And the lake was there. It started just after Wacom exit, but between Wacom and and uh, number three, and then it went all the way to the Vetter Canal. Um, so that that was about what, six miles, five, six miles, so that's eight kilometers. And then widthwise, it would span right from Sumas Mountain, on the north to Vetter Mountain on the south. So it was, it was very, very big. Uh, you know, it, it, it just sprawled right across the valley. And do we know how deep it was? It, by the time it was drained, it was, uh, you know, about 10 feet at, at the center. So it was a very shallow lake, um, although that's proof that it had been uh, filling in very quickly since... Uh, white settlers had come in, um, but during high water, so you know, it, during high water every spring, you know, the Fraser would uh, come into flow back into the lake. Usually, the lake flowed out Sumas River into Fraser, but at every freshet in the spring, the level of the Fraser would get higher than the level of the lake, and so it would, you know. Uh, uh, flood it, and the lake would expand anywhere from fifty, you know, by half to 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 a double, right? So then it would then it would um, expand in size, almost twice as big, and and in the highest floods, it would it, it, the highest flood came in eighteen ninety four. It stretched all the way from Chilliwack down into the United States, um, past Sumas City and down uh, down into uh, towards Nooksack in Washington state so uh, you know very very big when it when it flooded like that and and not to give the book away although it's not really a spoiler uh, alert no. because people know the lake's not there anymore it, it, 
Uh, but but yep. some of the, the fascinating history, and, and I know you get into this in the book, is the, the rather uh, tumultuous time of the de- when the decision was made of, yeah. of diking this, uh, of getting rid of the lake. And this involved mm-hmm. uh, newcomers, this involved First Nations. And, and how was it finding, getting that story and making sure that you were getting exactly what happened and representing what happened at that time? Yeah, um, I mean, there were, there were quite good records. Uh, con- you know, concerning the the push to to uh, dewater it, as one engineer said, and um, so you know, you, there's a lot of good records in the archives about the, their decisions of, of where to do and what to do it and how to do it and so forth. Um, all of this stuff happened in absolute, complete isolation from from the f- f- First Nations peoples. Um, well, isolation is not the word. It's it's negligence and so forth. Um, neither the Smath nor the the Chilak uh, nor the Matsqui, none of the, the the indigenous peoples were asked at all. It was just assumed that that it would. Well, they'll like it because it'll do. You know, it'll make their reserve lands more valuable. Um, and of course, if if they had heard, if they had listened a few times at that, that um, uh, you know, elders were put on record. Uh, the elders always said, "No, we don't want the lake drain." Uh, but of course, it was one of these things they weren't listening at all. And um, the story, in terms of the, the indigenous peoples, the the, the Chilak Smath in particular, when they heard, they were they were told, "Okay, this project, this final project," because it's. There were a series of projects from 1870s on, all of which failed. And so the Chilliwack and the Smath, when they heard about the last project, they had a meeting and they decided, well, it can't be done. They're not going to do it because it's failed so many times before. And so there wasn't a, 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 an effort to to try at least to make their voices heard. Um, and, you know, once it got going, it actually took a few years to do and um, the the uh, first nations were powerless in the face of it so uh, so that's what you get you got the the developers views you got the the, the white uh, settlers views in the newspapers and then the some of the record of of what what the first nations were saying so you know I built tried to build the, build a narrative a story around those different voices leading into the uh, and up to the, the, the draining of the lake. So, And, and was it uh, challenging for you to tell the story and to, to find the, kind of that balance between telling the story of a landscape and telling the story of the people that live there? Um, it, was, it, it was a challenging book to write, definitely, um, because it actually... I uncovered a lot of material, and um, so we just go to, to, to kind of you know put it all in shape because it's, it's like uh, you have to take material that's over here and elevate in another place. Chad, I don't know. Chad, I think your phone may have shifted. It sounds like you're oh, in okay. the lake now. There you go. Yes, there we are. <laughs> oh, you're <Okay>. back. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So uh, in the lake is is true because it's as I say when you open, when you're driving on Sumas Prairie, you're you know just think about 
100 years ago, uh, you're driving in water. And, you know, and that's the thing. It's, it's, it's a current. Actually, Sumas Lake itself is still there in the sense that, um, you know, there's a there's a the dam and the, and the pump station, which is out of sight, uh, which is up against uh, 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 up against uh, Sumas Mountain. And it's it's going it's working every year. And then you go across that canal. And of course, that takes the water out. But if you took the dam and pumps away and you took the dikes away on the Vetter Canal, the lake would come back because it's still being fed by by the the streams. So in that sense, it's still here, right? You know, the things that made it are still here. And this environment we think is natural is actually not natural. It's it's continually being, you know, drained. So I I, I hope I, I... you know, put that, the, the, you know, back to your question about how difficult it was to balance it all. And yes, it, it was, but also, you know, it had the advantage as, as a historian, when you have, when you're focusing on, like, it's almost like a biography, right? And, and the thing that holds the whole story together is, you know, the, the individual you're writing about. And, and that's how I thought about it doing here. The individual I'm writing about is the lake. And, so in in that sense, it, it 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 allowed you know it drew all these things together, um, because what what I had to worry about is you know things that related to the lake, and so I, you know I hope that I succeed in the book in you know kind of creating a, a a character right <laughs> through the book that 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 kind of pulls the book together. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I did uh, with, with the stuff. So we'll see if that's, that's how people, uh, people read it. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure they will. And uh, Chad, thank you so much. It was great to have you on the show to talk a bit more about this. Uh, thanks so much for writing this and for joining us oh. today. Well, you're welcome. But, and, and thank you very much for having me on, on uh, radio. All right. Have a great rest of your Sunday. You too. Bye.